1: And welcome back to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Ayer. We are presented by BetMGM, and we do not yet have a Red Wings end of season press conference uh, to dive into today. We delay the show by a day they delay the the press conference by indefinitely longer. So we're just going to go with it. Apologies if the press conference happens uh, in between when, when, uh, when you listen to the show and when we're recording it, uh, it won't be too long before we record again. So we'll, we'll get to it then. But uh, do you read into anything with this Prashant uh, when it comes to the fate of Jeff Blasio, the fact that there has been no announcement yet?
2: I mean, if you kind of contrast their situation with Columbus, um, Columbus and Tortorella made an announcement 12 hours after the end of their hockey game that he was not going to be back. Uh, Really, actually, that news leaked right after the game with uh, Aaron Portsline, uh, you know, part of the Athletic Columbus, announcing effectively that Tortorella was not coming back. So the more that this sort of drags on, um, the more that I sort of am biased to believing that this is part of negotiating a contract extension. I don't really have another reason why there would be delays in um you know the this press conference all the relevant player injuries have been noted on um, and have already been announced and kind of disposition for them so really it only sits down to what what is the situation with Jeff Blasio? and uh, I I have to imagine it's just hashing out terms of an extension you would expect
1: that if they were going to move on you wouldn't need 3 days to to make that call three days plus to make that call. I mean, you have to imagine eisman has been deciding what he wants to do uh, for, for the whole season. If they were going to move on, you would expect it to be swift. Uh, You know, the, the Tortorella situation I do think is a uniquely obvious, like, I don't think anybody wanted one more day there uh, with that. Um, But even like, you know, in the NFL, it's, they call it black Monday, you know, two days after one day after the season ends, because it's just, you, you, cut ties and you get a move on. Now, I guess the counter argument is uncertainty with David Quinn. uh, But I think that's a much different situation with a GM. Who's been the GM for about four days as opposed to this one. So, you know, I don't know. I I don't want to, you know, you know, jump the gun at all here, but it just, it, it would surprise me if they wait three days only to move on. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. I mean, that that's sort of where I'm at. Like, it just doesn't make sense that you would need that anything that would happen in these days would be changing. The opinion that, that, you know, Iserman should already have or already holds in terms of what he wants to do. To me, really, the only reason for delay has to be that they're hashing out, you know, terms here uh and, and not dragging this out later and later.
1: Yeah. So, nonetheless, we will get to that uh whenever they do it, um, whenever they have that press conference, the end of year presser, wh- whether there is a Jeff Blaschel extension or not. Uh, but as of right now, there's really not a whole lot more uh, to talk about there until there is. So we will get into what has been uh, the dominant story in the NHL today and, and yesterday, because the Sabres have been having their end of year press availabilities and there
2: have been some fireworks coming out of Buffalo. Yeah. I mean, it seems uh their star player, uh, Jack Eichel is not all too happy with kind of how he was managed throughout the course of the season. Uh you know, had this neck injury. I think it was a herniated disc in his neck is, is the official injury. And he was, uh, uh, I think he was point blank asked, you know, well, why didn't you just get surgery on it? And I think he sort of curtly replies that, well, it's sort of out of my control in terms of what I'm necessarily allowed to do by the team. And sort of talks about, goes on to really say that he's was, he was kind of frustrated with how his situation is, is was handled by Buffalo and that he very, ambiguously kind of stated that, well, we don't know if I'm going to be back next season and kind of what my future holds. And so naturally that has fired up the Jack Eichel trade machine. And so every person is uh, kind of running with their mock trades at this time. I think we might
1: have to join them, at least in a uh, watered down scale. We don't have to, to do a full mock trade, but uh, I was asked for the athletic yesterday to say whether the red, you know, categorize the Red Wings and the Jack Eichel sweepstakes. Uh, and I decided I, I was kind of waffling between a couple different options. The, the four categories we had were front runners. I don't think they're that. We'll test the market. Uh, don't have the assets or cap space or not an option. I was waffling between options two and four. We'll test the market and not an option because they absolutely have the caps, the uh, cap space and assets. I would by no means consider them a front runner that leaves two. I actually ended up putting them in the, we'll test the market category solely because uh, I don't want to rule out Steve Eisman making a play for one of the very few pieces that they need. One of the hardest pieces to find who fits their exact age range. Uh, I don't know that there's a trade fit here, honestly, between the two teams. And we'll get into that. I don't think anything like this would be likely, but that is how I classified
2: them because I, I do think the Red Wings have to call here, right? I think you have to, right? You sort of have to do your due diligence because, I mean, if if we're talking about Buffalo's willing to part with Jack Eichel for a first-round pick and a third-round pick, then, yeah, you absolutely have to make the phone call there uh, to, to sort of kick the tires. But, uh, you know, I'd sort of land in the not-an-option bucket um, for a couple of reasons. I think if you're Steve Eiserman and you kind of carefully – torn down and allowed these kind of bigger contracts to expire. You've kind of very carefully brought in this younger roster, bringing in a stud piece like Eichel by himself. um, I think you have to make sure you've got another framework set up to to add another piece because I don't think Eichel changes the trajectory by himself. Um, And then you also have to sort of think about what Buffalo is going to command um, in return, you know, if Buffalo is interested in roster players, you know, is that, you know, if you're looking at the Red Wings, really the only pieces that kind of fit what would uh, what Buffalo would be interested in is like Dylan Larkin, Phillips Zadina, and Moritz Sider, potentially a Lucas Raymond, although I don't know that uh, he's kind of the centerpiece of a deal like that. And so if you're giving up those kinds of roster pieces to land a player like Eichel, what does, how much does he really? you know, move the needle for you. So in, in my opinion, I just I don't necessarily see the wings as a great suitor here unless this can be done entirely with draft picks and uh the Red Wings are willing to part with that. They obviously have some extra picks, but uh, I, I think if you start carving up this roster to to make a move for Eichel, uh, you don't necessarily end up where I think you want to be uh, maybe contrasting a scenario where, like, if you were to offer sheet a guy like Pedersen, that's four picks and they're future picks for three of them. Uh, you're not necessarily tearing down what's in place when you're actually building off of that.
1: Yeah, I uh, I think ultimately we agree a lot more than we disagree here. I'm I'm I was really struggling on which categorization to put that in, um, but I I just think that the uh, you know, the, the fact that I would say if you're Steve Weisman, you got a call led me to. Uh, will test the market. I mean, that's, that's kind of what that means. I don't see him as being players on the level of like the Kings, the Ducks, uh, the Wilder, all teams who have been mentioned in the last the couple of days. Mm-hmm. The Rangers, obviously, that's the front runners for sure. Um, so I, I agree with you. I, I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense, partly because I think that the Sabres would be well within their rights to ask for a package that includes not just at Sider, not just a current NHL player in the top half of the Red Wings lineup, um, but also their 2021 first round pick. You think might even be more than that. And if that's the case, like I wouldn't even do that deal. I wouldn't do Cider Bertuzzi and the 2021st for Jack Eichel. I would as if I'm Steve Eisenman. I would not do that. Uh, but to your contention,
2: it's possible Buffalo wouldn't either. Yeah, I mean, if you're Buffalo, you're sitting on a 24 year old first line center who, when healthy, is. Comfortably amongst the top 10 forwards in the league. Arguably Comfortably, comfortably top 10 forwards in the Ooh, league. I don't know. I might disagree with that. Okay. Comfortably com- top 10 forwards in the league. That's right. where I'm at here on Jack Eichel. I mean, when he is healthy, he is comfortably a top 10 forward in this So you league. think like six or seven? Yeah. I mean, I think you can even make an argument for top five with Jack McDavid. Eichel when he's healthy. Yeah. I mean, McDavid. obviously you're going to take McDavid. Matthews. You're going to take Matthews. You know, I think then you, I'd probably have Mark Stone and Nathan McKinnon in that bucket. And then after that, at five, I think you're talking about, you're talking about guys like Barkov, you're talking about guys like Eichel, you're talking about some of those other kind of upper echelon forwards, Patterson's in that uh, category as well. Crosby at this point, still there, Dreisaitl's still there. I think, I don't think Ovechkin's in that bucket anymore for me. I think he's a little kind of geared one-dimensionally at this point. Brayden Point's in that conversation. But Eichel is in that tier of player to me for those guys that are in that kind of realm. Really, the only four guys I'm comfortably saying I'm going to take ahead of Jack Eichel is, you know, exactly who you listed out with McDavid, McKinnon, Matthews uh, and Mark Stone. And after that, like there is a tier of players between, you know, five to 10 players where Eichel is very comfortably, you know, towards the top of that crop. And so for me, he's a top 10 forward in the league. Uh, and he's 24, and he's got, um, you know, a lot of people bulk at the $10 million contract, particularly with the flat cap. But if that cap starts to escalate uh, with the new TV deals um, in two years, as opposed to, you know, three or four, then that deal ends up not being as bad from a cap hit percentage and you potentially have a first line center that's a top 10 forward in the league on a reasonable contract. My pitch for Barkov
1: as... cementedly, clearly establishedly better than Eichel is. Uh, Jack Eichel had a career year last year, 1.15 points per game. Uh, Alexander Barkov is topping that this year and is going to win the Selkie. And oh, by the way, it's not even his high-scoring season of his
2: career. Yeah, I mean, Barkov's a heck of a hockey player, and that's why I think you you can certainly have the conversation that, that he and Eichel, um, for me at least, I think they're in the same tier. But you can – I wouldn't dispute anyone who wants to argue that uh, – um, you know, Barkov's ahead of Eichel. I think if you go a step further and you look at it from like an expected goals above replacement um, perspective, Barkov has more seasons that are higher than Eichel. But Eichel's peak season is the exact same as Barkov's peak season. Okay. And Eichel's peak season was last year. And so, and he put up 22 go- uh, expected goals above replacement in 68 games. And it's Bar- worst team context. Yeah, worst team context. Whereas Barkov did 22 expected goals above replacement in 82 games. So, yep. on a per minute basis, you know, Eichel was a little bit better there. Uh, so, I think his peak is certainly that of a top ten forward, if not top five forward, when he's healthy. That season was just last season. Obviously, this year he had all of the struggles with the the, the neck injuries and. And, and challenges like that, but I mean, doing it on an, on an inferior Buffalo team is uh, very impressive in my books. And so, if you're able to trade for that and have him be 25, um, I think you're you're if you're Buffalo, you have a really steep asking price here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I push uncomfortably, but I would have him right around 10. I just would debate between probably like anywhere from like eight to 11, kind of thing for me. But nevertheless, like especially as a center. Uh, If you add Jack Eichel to your team, there are, uh, and and you don't take anyone off your team uh, for, if you're the Red Wings, you immediately are a playoff team in my mind. Um, And I think if you're going to make that trade, uh, you can completely justify it on his age. You can justify it on his impact and you justify it by what did we talk about a month ago? You know, if Dylan Larkin is somewhere between the, the 25th and 30th best center in the NHL, that means you're gonna need a top 10 center to win a Stanley Cup, right? Jack Eichel is that. I think he is definitely a top 10 center in the NHL. So you can justify that. I mean, that gives you you know one of the most important boxes to check as a cup contender. The question is of cost. And and so his contract is obviously expensive. That's what it costs to get an elite player. I'm not sweating the $10 million. Um, I Maybe the slightest of hesitance with the neck injury. Um, but if you have to give up Your top one of your top two prospects, and I really do think that if it's one of them, uh, the the ask would be a cider. I don't think you can trade a guy like Eichel for a winger, um, and especially you know Moritz Sider has just proven more since his draft year. He's he's you know I think he's the number one prospect on Craig Button's list. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I, I believe so. I don't remember the last time I saw Buttons list, but he's I th- if he's not one, he's I think two or three. He's definitely up there. I think him and Raymond are top three.
1: both. Yeah, I think yeah. I think Siders one, Raymond's three. So it's not obviously yeah. not a huge
2: gap either way. Right. But if,
1: if I'm Buffalo, I'm asking for the the guy with the potential to be, uh, you know, twenty five minute a night defenseman. I'm asking for a top line forward, uh, whether that's Bertuzzi or Verana, maybe Zadina, um, and I'm asking for that top ten pick. And I just think if you're the Red Wings, yes, all of a sudden you have Eichel. Uh, but are you that much closer? Because now you have basically a whole defense core still to assemble. I mean, you're going to have Hronik and probably, you know, potentially Johansson. Um, but you're, you're not going to have a complete kind of top six or, you know, top two lines of wingers. Uh, and you're going to be missing basically an entire top pair, de- uh, defensemen, and you don't really have anywhere to find it without your pick. I mean, maybe you can get it in 2022, but we know defensemen take a while. All of a sudden you've got Eichel, you're spinning your wheels. He gets just as happy in Detroit as he is right now in Buffalo. Unhappy, I should say. Uh, And how do you know he's not doing the same thing two years from now? So I just don't think there's a fit on timeline here if, you know, given what he's going to cost. But if you called Buffalo and they just wanted futures uh, or, you know, they wanted, I, I don't even, I can't even imagine what they would want that, that isn't. One of those two options, like, you know, basically what it would cost to offer sheet him, which is like your next four first round picks, including this year's. Um, I think you could justify something like that, but I don't think that's what it's going to be. And, and the pressure to win in Buffalo sooner than later is going to start to get immense. You can't keep churning through generation after generation of top picks who, uh you know, it doesn't go anywhere with. So uh, that's a long rambly way of saying I probably should have put them in the not an option category. Um, and maybe maybe that's what I've realized through these first 10 minutes of the episode.
2: Yeah, I mean, my kind of opinion on it is the only way a Jack Eichel deal makes sense uh, for Detroit is if it's the last deal made as a part of a monumental offseason. Yeah. I'm talking, you're going out, you're signing Dougie Hamilton, you're going out, you're bringing in Jamie Alexiak for defense step, you're going out, you're bringing in some other winger to play on on that you know, because the ones do have 50 million in cap space. You're you're literally making all of these deals. And then the last piece is you're trading for Jack Eichel. At that and you're point. all in
1: on next right. year. at
2: that, And point. you are yeah. all in. Like that is the only way that a move like that makes sense. So to me, three other dominoes have to fall before you can really get to that point. And you need everything to work out perfectly because uh, otherwise, if you just bring in Jack Eichel, to me, it's exactly like you said, you're not taking this team far enough. But if you again go out, you get a Dougie Hamilton, you go out, you get a, you know, Jamie Alexiak, you go out, you find a way to bring in Ryan Nugent Hopkins, uh, you know, maybe even you bring in Brandon Saad on a cheap deal. I don't I'm just literally throwing names out there of what you would yeah. have to do to make that make sense with the guys you're gonna ultimately have to give up. And then you're really shifting your timeline to I need to win right now. And and if that's the case, that also that means you have to have the supporting cast in place to win right now. And and that's a hockey team that can win, and the Red Wings can mathematically do it because of how much cap space they have. But that really is a huge, huge uh, risk and gamble because, like you said earlier, if Eichel ends up in a scenario where he's unhappy, the added challenge the Red Wings will face is his no-move clause kicks in. And then at that point, you almost end up in a Taylor Hall type situation. Well, and a, where and it, then it hasn't
1: worked in two places. Right. His reputation starts to be, oh, he's right. a guy you can't win with, yada, yada. You know how that goes.
2: I mean, he's already getting—he's already been labeled as the coach killer in a certain yeah, sense yeah, by people right. jokingly for the number of coaches that Buffalo's churned through. And Which that's is an fair. ownership and right.
1: front office issue more right. than anything.
2: Right. That's not yeah. fair to Jack Eichel whatsoever. But you're absolutely right. Now you're dealing with a depreciating asset that has uh, a, a no-move clause attached as a team, you're not gonna be able to get much uh or nearly as much as as you paid for to, to bring Jack Eichel there. So, really, truly, the only way it makes sense is if he's the last piece of the, do- of, of the puzzle here, not the centerpiece of your offseason.
1: I think that's fair. I just I don't I don't realistically see it. I kind of regret not putting it in the not an option category, but I just felt like if when if Jack Eichel comes available. You're not doing your job if you don't at least call and just see what it's going to be, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. You have to call, right? You're If you don't call and then it ends up being a lot cheaper than you thought, then you're going to sort of kick yourself. It's exactly like what happened with the Anthony Manta deal where there were some GMs that came out and said, boy, I wish Steve made us aware that Anthony Manta was available because I would have made a phone call. Um, It's that kind of deal. You have to make the phone call. So, you have
1: to make it. And especially because the worst I met, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's a ton of really bad feelings at GM. I have to imagine one of the worst possible ones is seeing a guy get traded for less than you would have happily paid for him. And now you don't have him on your team and one of your rivals just added him.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's no worse situation than seeing, you know, like I bet none of those teams uh, in in Boston's division were real happy to see. Uh, Taylor Hall go for Anders Bjork and and a, and a pick. second like right? right like no one was happy to see oh my God Taylor Hall's in my division now and that's all that Boston had to pay for it
1: right so. probably least of all the Islanders who passed on him to take Palmieri for more than that
2: <laughs> it's Palmieri and Zajac.
1: <laughs> right for for but for and so they paid more to get those yeah. guys than Hall yeah
2: right yeah just just a, a funny move overall and and you know it, we'll see I mean. So you have to make that phone call, I think at the end of the day, but I think unless Steve Eisenman has uh, several magic tricks planned, uh, this one doesn't make a lot of sense for the Red Wings.
3: Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily with 24 seven US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime.
0: You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, so you and I got
1: into a back and forth in our uh, text conversation today over what an Eichel trade should cost, not to the Red Wings specifically, but just at large and the situation that Buffalo is in here. I want to preface it by saying... Uh, I, I really think Buffalo is in a tough spot here. I think they're, you know, I I think the franchise catches a lot of heat. And I think, especially with stuff like, um, this medical surgery thing, that's only going to amplify, you know, I have to, you know, I I just, I think I love the city of Buffalo. That's what I might, I know it might be, sound like a weird thing to say. Uh, I think those fans deserve winning hockey so badly. And I think that franchise deserves winning hockey so badly. They have been through the ringer for basically, I mean, certainly my entire time covering this sport uh, and even, you know, years preceding it. Uh, And I, I don't know if there's a team in the NHL that I would be like happier for them to see them turn the corner and succeed because it's just, you know, it's the city that you see at the very top of the NHL ratings almost every year, despite the fact that they're never in the cup. Uh, That is a a hockey city. They have some amazing talent. I kind of can't believe it hasn't come together for them yet. I want to see this happen for Buffalo and I want to see it happen for them with Jack Eichel in their uniform. That said, I think they're in a really hard spot and I almost think they kind of are going to have to trade him even if it means losing the trade. And I don't see a way they ultimately win the Jack Eichel trade. Um, And you kind of think that they have some room to hold out more. So I wanted to have that dialogue a little bit back and forth.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think uh, the the crux of what I kind of believe Buffalo can do here is um, obviously not the most likely scenario for Buffalo based on their track record here. But Uh, I think to start, I sort of consider Jack Eichel to be a top 10 forward in the NHL. I'll restate that here. And that's sort of what drives uh, my perspective here. So when you have a 24 year old forward, uh, presumably going to be hundred percent healthy for the start of next season, uh, right in the middle of their prime locked into a deal for, you know, several more years, Eichel's under contract through 2025, 2026. Um, My kind of, opinion would be, you need to do everything you can to hang on to elite talent, right? We've talked about this episode after episode after episode that the most important part of a rebuild is acquiring elite talent. And Buffalo has it. They have an elite talent in Jack Eichel, and they have that elite talent in his prime. And they have it locked up. They're not going to be paying money there. So my number one mission, if I was the Pagoulas, uh, the, the owners of Buffalo, would be I need to repair my relationship with Jack Eichel. And I don't know, and and I need to do what it takes. And that's not to say that he gets unilateral decision making of who his coach is and who his GM is and, and things like that. But you need to have that open dialogue that we often see happen in the NBA, in the NFL, other sports that find a way to center priorities around their franchise players such that they can build good teams around them and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But to me, if you are destined to lose a trade for Jack Eichel that resets your rebuild, you're going to get you know, pennies on the dollar, then your number one priority should be, before I get forced into that, is there anything I can do from a relationship-saving standpoint to preserve my ability to hang on to this elite talent who's in his prime and under contract?
1: My thing is, do you actually have the luxury to take that time and that swing? Because if you aren't able to, I I agree with you. Like You you try whatever you can, but I'm just skeptical that if you take that year, what's the odds that you can actually convince him? And what I really think is, and other people have pointed this out, it's been reported Jack Eichel's no-move kicks in next year, like you said. If you wait a year and it's still not fixed a year from now, and you're going to have to trade him then all of a sudden you've lost a ton of the market because Jack Eichel can call a shot at that point for where he wants to go. Now you could probably go to him and say, look, if you want out so bad, give us somewhere to send you. Um, But you know, at the end of the day, once that kicks in, the player has a lot more control. The team has a lot less leverage. And I think the bet you're making isn't, you know, okay. Is, is it at all feasible to make Jack Eichel happy again? I'm sure it probably could be, but, you're going to have to do it in one year. And I don't think this team is a playoff team next year. And if the crux of it does come down to winning beyond just uh, the medical staff stuff, then all of a sudden you have to win in a year when you probably can't win. I mean, they went out last year and they got Taylor hall didn't win. Didn't go anywhere. Like they got him an MVP wingman. It didn't work. And and now they're here. Right. So, you know, obviously the switch to Don Granado late in the season seemed to go well for the Sabres, Maybe if, if Eichel could play for him, maybe that makes him a little happier. I don't know. Um, but they've cycled through coaches and GMs enough. They've, they've made enough changes there. I think what that franchise probably needs more than anything is stability. And ideally Jack Eichel staying would be part of that stability, but I don't know that you can be as drastic as you would probably need to be to like show like, look, we're changing everything for you. Um, and then expect to see results in the next year before that no-move clause kicks in. So I think there's a, there's a timer element to it, and there's a scope element of it, like how much of the organization can you, should you turn over for Jack Eichel? To me, I think more than anything in the world, what that organization needs is stability.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely echo that they need stability, and I think part of the reason why they are where they are is when you continue to disrupt uh, philosophies and management styles by constantly firing your GM and constantly firing your coach. Um, Rearranging the whole scouting it, staff. It's right. What, what what you end up doing is you continue to change the plan such that you never have a coherent plan. So, you know, the approach with Eichel isn't, I, I don't necessarily view it as a this year or next year kind of deal because fundamentally we should all be very honest. There is nothing Buffalo could do right now that could make this team a winning hockey team next season. I think we can agree on that. There's yeah. fundamentally nothing they can do. So that shouldn't be the benchmark. That shouldn't be the benchmark on what you're going But is it his do. benchmark?
1: But is it his benchmark, right? Like like if, if in a year he still wants out and now the no move clause kicked in because you didn't win, now what do you do?
2: So so if that's the case, right, then that means from my management standpoint, I can't repair that relationship. If that's what it is for Jack Eichel, he needs to win next season – I can't do anything about that and I have to make the deal. Right. But for me my my idea or philosophy behind it would be look, Jack, you're 24 years old. You know, let me lay out this plan of how I'm going to bring this team back. This is the management style we're going to have. This is what we're going to do. These are kind of the things that I'd like us to, to move, you know, season after season after season. These are the people I'm bringing in to make that happen. Here's their track record. I also want you to have some input and dialogue on this, you know, effectively open up that path of communication. And if Eichel's willing to sign on to that, then that's great. And I've taken that step forward to repair that relationship. And at that point, I'm in for the long haul. I know I'm going to lose any deal if I go in the no move clause, but I'm also going to lose any deal right now. I just may lose it by less. Um, But if I at least can lay out that plan, get him to buy in and make him feel like he is the franchise player because he is that franchise player and then start bringing in the people to figure out what do we need to do to make this team better. You got to get rid of the Jeff Skinner contract. That is a horrible, horrible contract that is going to impact this hockey team for years to come. You have to find a way to keep Sam Reinhardt. That needs to be a priority for Jack Eichel. He's been a heck of a hockey player for them. You got to try and get out of the Kyle Ocposo contract as well you got to figure out what you're doing on defense. There's a lot of things Buffalo has to do. But to me, again, I don't know the intimacies of the situation. I don't know what's already been said. All of this could have already happened, making my point moot. But at the end of the day, if I can lay out a coherent roster turnover plan, a coherent vision for this team, and when I think I can compete, my hope is that I can get Eichel to buy in and go from there. But if I can't, then at that point I I need to follow exactly what you're saying and get the most that I can out of him. And you could be right. All of this could already happen, and this is beyond reparations here um, or beyond repair. But at the, I, I guess to me, knowing Buffalo and how much they've turned things over, I don't know that this has happened. And that's where I just that's where I would at least want to start. I, I see. So I would
1: think I was misunderstanding you earlier because I thought what you were kind of advocating for was you know clean house again and 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 that. But I I, no, I think I'm hearing you differently. Like you're not saying do any more turnover here. You're just saying. Maybe bring him in more, give him a little more, uh, you know, clarity into the vision and and try to kind of sell him more than like, hey, we'll give you whoever coach you want, all that stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying like turn this into a LeBron James running Cleveland situation where he is picking his coach. He's picking, you know, like he's bringing in Tyron Lue to to be his coach and he's picking certain players to come play with him. The problem is in the NBA, you can build around LeBron James. LeBron James can take a team of nobodies to the NBA Finals. He did in 2007. Yeah. The, the value and impact of a superstar in the NHL is simply less because they don't play as much. Yeah. But I still, I think at the end of the day, what hasn't been communicated to Eichel, and I could be wrong here, is a coherent vision on how Buffalo gets better, how he fits into that, and how he should have a dialogue in that. I'm not saying that he gets to come in and pick his GM. I'm not saying he comes in to, 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 to pick his coach, but he needs to ha- be included in the decision-making. The of the day. He needs to have a voice at the table as your franchise player, as a top 10 forward in the NHL, in my opinion. I think that needs to happen for Buffalo with Eichel. And I don't know that that's happened yet. If it has, I mean, yeah, I agree. This is beyond repair. You got you to gotta kind of cut your losses and um, get the most you can for Eichel here. But these teams tend to lose these deals anytime you're moving these guys, unless they're forcing their way in a Lindros fashion to a specific team, more often than not, you lose these deals. And so if you're Buffalo, you should be trying to do everything you can to prevent yourself from losing that deal, which to me comes down to laying out a coherent vision for how this team gets better. I
1: think I agree with you on more of that than I realize. But what I will say is I just think you can't be afraid to lose the trade. If it makes you win on the ice eventually, like like I think you should be prepared to lose the Eichel trade in that the pieces you get probably don't add up to Jack Eichel's. Like you know, like let's say you get three pieces, they're probably not going to give you twenty two goals above replacement in one season. Like it's it's probably not going to happen like that. But you know, Jack Eichel's a ten million dollar player, so if you can win it and you know, open yourself up some flexibility to to do some other things and you get young players on cheap contracts who eventually grow up into really solid contributors. If you can get, you know, top pair, you know, top line players, multiple of them, I do think eventually you can build a winner that way. Uh, it, on on volume, and you, and you just have to do it a little different way, rather than being the team that's driven by you know the 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 two superstars and and Eichel and Deline. Uh, although it sounds like maybe Reinhardt could go too, you know who knows? Like maybe you're driven by Deline and a bunch of. Uh, you know, really, really good Dylan Cousins types. You know, the, the two top prospects that you get back in this trade, and and a first round pick. You're going to get potentially, you know, certainly a top three pick this year to add into that. So whether that be an Owen Power, a Matt Baneers, a Brandt Clark, a Luke Hughes, whatever that may be, right? Like I think you can win with volume if you if you make the right trade. You still might lose the trade in the eyes of some, but if if you become a winning team on the other side of it, it's okay. I I think you can't be so afraid to lose the trade that you lose the plot, I guess is how I would put it.
2: So let me let me throw this then, right? So you make the deal for Jack Eichel. You you decide that you're going to trade him. Yeah. Once Buffalo trades Jack Eichel, how far yeah. off are they from being the 2019-2020 Red Wings? Probably not that far. Right. They're probably the 2019-2020 Red Wings, who we now sit and talk about a five-year timeline for them last year. Yep. So that's what you're doing to Buffalo is you're now saying – I need to start from scratch, except the problem for Buffalo is, unlike the 1920 Red Wings, which were setting themselves up for a lot of cap flexibility, they still have two more years of Kyle LaCoso. They still have several more years of Jeff Skinner at $9 million. They still are in salary cap hell with those deals. If if you're really committing to that, you got to find a way to move those deals as well as the Eichel deal. But you're basically resetting yourself back to 1920 Detroit. And if you are Buffalo, how many times are you going to do this? Right? That is, I mean, you're now going back to where you were in 2014, 2015, when this was a team tanking for McDavid. Now, to be fair, tanking for Shane Wright next season or Connor Bedard and, you know, Mitchkov the the season after that, that's not a bad way to be, uh, given how skilled those guys are. We just saw it at the U18s. But you are now putting yourself in that position where, again, you need to find elite talent. And, and, and that's, that's to me, you know, we go back a couple episodes, right? You said you would take Buffalo's rebuild over anyone because yeah. they had the elite talent. And yeah. now you're going to scrap it and go right back to well, where Detroit was. If the last elite
1: year. talent's going to leave, like, like, you know, like demanding out, like it's a different story. Like I think I even said on that day, I'm assuming that they keep Jack Eichel. Like if that all bets are off if, if that can't happen. But you're you're exactly right. I mean, like the thrust of your point is you're as close as you've been, even if it doesn't seem like it um, uh, in terms of the talent acquisition phase. Now you just got to get these guys happy. So,
2: yeah, I mean, you have the pieces here if you are Buffalo to become a better hockey team. Yes. Dylan Cousins is a heck of a hockey player. Sam Reinhardt is great, you know, uh, you know, and then obviously you have Jack Eichel. While Dalene hasn't necessarily been what people thought he would be. He still has that uh you know potential in, in, in my opinion to be a better hockey player. You're gonna add a top three pick this year, and you're likely adding a top five pick next year. You still have Jack Quinn in the system. To me, there are pieces here to build a hockey team around. And yep. if you can, if you again, if you come to Eichel and say, All right, I'm gonna get someone to take this Jeff Skinner deal. I'm gonna get out of this Kyle Poso deal. I'm gonna make sure Reinhardt gets paid. You know, I'm gonna make sure that we've you know, sort out what we're doing on defense and we're going to make good picks at the 21 and 22 draft. This is a hockey team that can be competitive exactly like you said in that episode. So that's where I think you have to do everything you possibly can to exhaust keeping Jack Eichel before you decide that you're going to lose that deal because you are going to lose that deal. Yeah.
1: I I think you've won me over to a much higher degree than I expected coming onto this show. So, it will be uh, the story of the summer. I can assure you of that. Um, and I really hope that whatever it happens, that, like genuinely, I really hope that it works out for Buffalo. Like that, you know, that organization, that team, they deserve some some joy, some wins, some celebration here. I really hope it goes well for them.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I hope it works out for Buffalo. I hope it works out for Jack Eichel. He's yeah, become, for sure. you know, I think the frustrating part from, from Eichel's standpoint is he doesn't get talked about in the same circles because. It was the McDavid and Eichel draft and Connor McDavid. And then very quickly after, Austin Matthews is right behind him and almost erases sort of Jack Eichel in that sense. And and because of the injury this year being stuck in Buffalo, we just don't talk about how good of a hockey player Jack Eichel is. He's a phenomenal hockey player. And so whatever happens, I hope he gets on a team that has a vision, whether it's in Buffalo or somewhere else. And that Buffalo, that fan base really deserves something uh, better than what they've had. I'll yeah. say that. And the, you
1: know, like the, the, I think the franchise does too, like the org, like I know people are mad at the Pagulas, but, but the pagoulas suck. I'm going to just well, say that, that. That's fine. But like the people <laughs> who work in that organization, you know, think about the, the sweat that goes into a season, you know, in, in, in scouting and oh, trying yeah, to all yeah, this yeah. stuff the people, together. You
2: know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. The people of the franchise, uh, deserve better.
1: Yeah. That's what I mean.
2: Yeah.
0: so
1: all right moving on uh we got some unbelievable mail guy questions today uh we're gonna get to as many of them as possible i think we got about 20 minutes here 20 25 minutes or so let's do it all right uh here's one that uh, i i think thought was interesting from lars uh it ties back to a conversation that you and i were having a couple of days ago is rasmussen the glendening of the future do we want to go into our uh bizarro explanation that we gave then or do we just want to answer this one straight
2: up <laughs> I mean, (laughs) I probably was just better served answering it straight up in that he's better than he's better than Luke Lindenning. Let me just say that. But I think on a really competitive hockey team, you probably want him slotting on that third or fourth line center. So he ultimately fills the role, but he's a better hockey player.
1: All right, I'm going to give my take and just see what happens. So I think Michael Rasmussen is an extraordinarily difficult player to conceptualize what he looks like on a cup contender, because when you say it, you almost have to double take, right? Like, like he is a, in my opinion, a fifteen minute per night fourth line center. Now that doesn't mean I don't think he's a third line cal- center caliber player on like a bunch of teams in the NHL, even playoff teams. But I think if you're talking about not a contender, your ideal role for Michael Rasmussen is as a matchup center. That's often the kind of role that, that Glendening does play. But then he's also probably on power play one, and if he projects to what you want him to be, penalty kill one. So that adds up to playing a role that is more reminiscent of like a middle six borderline top six player if you get up north of 15 minutes uh per night. And I think that's what you will want of Rasmussen. So I think at Evens, you're gonna want to play him on a hard uh to play against line. You're gonna wanna play him, you know, I, I think a-, a line that has more offense than the than the classic Glendending Ernie Helm line has. But if you told me that like the the Red Wings, you know, kind of matchup line of the future uh included like, you know, let's say it's uh You know, Michael Rasmussen, Robert Master Simone and Adam Ernie or something like that. That's a line that can score, but that's a line that also gives you some hard to play against. You know what I mean? Or even if you wanted to throw like a, I don't know, Elmer Soderplum or something on there. Right. Like at some point, um, I do think you want that to be a matchup line. And right now the Red Wings are kind of having to play matchup lines on the third and fourth line. But as a contender, you'd probably really only want to have to do it on the fourth.
2: Right. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like the role you're sort of describing is almost like what Darren McCarty did for the Red Wings for a really long time, yeah. um, particularly in the early 90s. I mean, in the early 90s, he, granted, he he would occasionally play on the top line as a forward, but or as, as kind of the 90s rolled on, he sort of shifted into that third or fourth line winger role, but he would play on the first power play occasionally, uh, and he would play on the first penalty kill occasionally. And so it was like he was a guy that ended up averaging about You know, anywhere from, I think, as many as 17 minutes a night to some other seasons, it was 13 minutes a night or 11 minutes a night. But he was a guy that could, you know, sort of do all of those things. So I think Michael Rasmussen has some of that skill, but is probably best suited lower in the lineup, like you're saying. Yeah, I I think he's a
1: bottom six player who's going to be on your first unit of both special teams. I just think that's a tough thing for people to conceptualize. But that's how I see him, at least. I might be wrong. That's just how I see him.
2: Yeah, I mean I, th- I think he he certainly demonstrated that he has the or that he's proficient in some of the skills that you would like um to be there. And so uh, I d I don't see why that's not a reasonable thing to think about and kind of a guy to equate him to is maybe a McCarty type. So
1: yeah. Now, now the grind line classically helped me out here. There was kind of a third line, right?
2: Yeah, I mean they were they were the third line, there was the checking line. I think as yeah. their careers went on, some of them started to to fall into the fourth line. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that was primarily a third checking line. So that's
1: kind of your dream scenario, right? Is is a third line that includes like Erasmus, Anna Valeno, and somebody else, right?
2: Yeah, because I mean, at that point, you're almost effectively recreating, you know, that grind line because I think a lot of people sort of forget that like Kirk Multi scored 50 in juniors. Like, yeah. that was a guy playing on your third line as a checker, yeah. was that sort of, you know, offensive talent? I mean, McCarty was also a heck of a hockey player in juniors. So it's like, Yeah, if you're able to make that your third line where it's like Joe Valeno, who is an exceptional status player, and, you know, Michael Rasmussen, who's, you know, a top 10 pick. If that ends up being your third line, then you're in a really good spot.
1: Yeah. All right. That's good. Uh, On to the next one. Uh, And that was from Lars. I don't know if I said that, by the way. But this next one is from Phil. Uh, He says, if the Rovings don't re-sign Bernier, what are the other goalie options? I would lead with uh, Chris Dreger, although I'm sure he's going to be an in-demand name after what he did this year, but auntie Ranta's out there too, right? That'd be another one.
2: Yeah. I mean, Ranta would be an interesting player for sure. I think, you know, we've sort of h- talked about Dreeger on, on past episodes. I think my biggest uh, hesitancy with him is just, you're going to be competing and that money yeah. gets driven up. I think, you know, other names that I've thrown out, James Reimer, Philip Grubauer's out there. Dave Ridditch is another name out there. If you're prepared to go with kind of grace is your starter all the way through. Um, you know, so so those are a couple of guys that that I kind of like Brusquah in Winnipeg. I not as a guy. I mean, you not as a really yeah, yeah, not as a one B. Like you would yeah. need to make sure Christ is prepared to play seventy percent of those games. That's fair. I mean, Brusquah could certainly fill in, but um, I don't know about that. And then you know, alternatively, you know, you explore some other trade options. Obviously, we talked about the the Rangers with Georgiev and and Shosturkin there. I mean, that that's a possibility. Friends. Yeah, and then Franzos in in, in Colorado, if they end up electing to re-sign Grubauer, but ultimately, I think there's a there's a handful of different options out there that could be reasonable ones to pull in.
1: All right, so that's a net handsome hockey pod wants to know. You've talked about who some of the Red Wings' own UFAs might get re-signed. What about UFAs out there that might make sense for the Red Wings at this time? I think this is probably a topic that it's like a little premature on. Some of the guys are going to get re-signed. Um, you know, before it even gets there. I think expansion draft maybe complicates it slightly too. Um, But are there any, like, you know, even if we just minimize this to forwards a little bit, is there anyone that you think would be like a good fit for the Red Wings uh, who's hitting the mark? I assume, you know, the Landeskog's, the Halls, the Ovechkins, the, you know, David Krejci. Is he a UFA this year?
2: Uh, is Krejci? Yeah, Krejci's the UFA this year.
1: Yeah, so, like, I assume those are kind of out of the out of the range. Uh, but is there anyone who does stand out UFA wise among like forwards who, who jumps out at you? Let's say they have one to fill. Cause I think that's probably close to accurate.
2: Yeah. I think they're going to have one to fill. Um, I think a guy that I threw out as being a reasonable option was Mikhail Grigorenko who's kind of played a little bit of yep. bottom six center slash wing for the, the jackets. Uh, not the strongest of centers, but uh, certainly a guy that could fill your bottom six role. If you elect to, to move on from a Glenn Denning or move on from Gagne, uh, you know, I think he's a guy you could bring in to, to handle a lot of those um, responsibilities. So he's probably the the big one that um, at least is on my radar. Um, Jordan Martin another guy who if Carolina likes not to bring him back. He's a great energy guy, has some skill, um, can do a lot of different things for you. So I think he'd be a nice hockey player to uh, to bring in, you know, the Alex Gelchenyuk redemption tour in Toronto if he's able to come in and be a a cheap offering for you. Um he looked re- he's looked reasonably good in Toronto. Um you bring him in on a million dollars, I think that's another option there. So I think there's a handful of guys you could could certainly consider. Um and then obviously Blake Coleman's another one who he'll be an unrestricted free agent. Um I don't believe Tampa will have the capacity to to resign him, but no. he's another guy who can be in the third line or fourth line uh for you and do a lot of damage there.
1: Philip Deneau, too rich for your blood.
2: Um it's sort of it's tough. I mean, I sort of think he's going to get a contract north of four million. I do too. Um, and if that's the case, uh, I probably am steering away from competing in a UFA market. But he's a he's a great hockey player too.
1: Okay, uh, I asked you about four words there because the next question is from Will S. If you had to bring one UFA defense partner specifically for Cider for his first season in Detroit, who would that be?
2: Yeah, if you're bringing a UFA in, um, I really like Jamie Alexiak. I think he's looked really nice in Dallas, left shot. Um big is he UFA? Mobile. He's a UFA. Oh, I had so no idea. um making a little over two million. So I think he could reasonably bring him and he's 28. Um, good skater, uh, can move the puck well. I think he'd That's be a, a nice option. Pair. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, now you're looking at you know, what is Alexia, like, six seven, six eight, yeah. and then Sider's yeah. obviously, you know, six five. I mean, that is a gigantic mobile defense pair. Um, that would be a lot of fun to watch. And and that's honestly probably my ideal partner. Um, you know, Jordy Ben's another guy who I think could be a reasonable option. He's a UFA this year, left shot. Um, that could play there. Alec Martinez is a veteran defenseman who he's he sort of dropped off, but um Stanley Cup experience with the Kings plays playing with Vegas right now, might get another cup there. Uh, I think he'd be another heck of a hockey player to bring on if you could get him relatively cheap.
1: Hometown kid, right? Yeah. Yep. You'd be a lot of fun. Am I allowed to say John Merrill or do you think that that counts as not a UFA? Cause he was in, in Detroit most of the season.
2: I mean, I think that still counts, right? He, you would still have to re-sign him if he was even here in Detroit. So that still counts.
1: I, I said it earlier this year that I thought before they traded Merrill that I thought he would be a really good deep partner for Mort Sider, And that hasn't changed. I just, I, I think it accomplishes two things. Number one It allows you to play Sider with someone who was, you know, arguably had some of the best defensive impacts of any Red Wings defense, but as did Patrick Nemeth, both of them were really good. Um, But, you know, had some of the best defensive impacts that allows Sider to, to not have to be entirely, entirely, entirely focused on defense as a rookie. He can take some risks and and have a safety valve back there, a veteran who's going to help him out there at the same time it does allow you to use that as a shutdown pair and lean into Sider's strength on the defensive end and his physicality and deploy that in really tough matchups and still allow Sider to take those risks. So I think he's kind of a dream partner in that way. I think you'd envision a similar dynamic to your Alexiak point um, in that situation. Um, So I don't think
2: that's a bad idea by any means either.
1: I just, when I was thinking of Merrill and Sider earlier this year, I thought this would make a whole lot of sense.
2: Yeah. I mean, Merrill's another guy that would be a great defensive partner, um, you know, another guy who's out there, Jake McCabe with the Sabres. Um, yep. He got injured, I think, uh, early on in the season. But he's looked quietly very good. And so he's another, I think, really solid defensive player. And and honestly, the whole reason we're talking about kind of the defensive guy to play with most Sider is so that they have a little bit, so that he really has a little bit more freedom to kind of feel out the game and, and kind of play yep. within his uh, kind of within his skill set. It's almost like what. Nick Lidstrom had when he first came over to to North America and played with the Red Wings. Played with Brad McCrimmon. And Brad McCrimmon was defensive defenseman, and it allowed Nick Lidstrom to to go up and down the ice, pinch in when he wanted to because he knew Brad always had his back. And so, same concept um, here, where you would want a guy that can basically be that for most sider or be a safety
0: valve.
1: Yeah. So, I I think uh, those are some good options. Uh, to look at and and you know i, I do think Cider's is going to succeed uh next year not regardless of who they play him with but in most scenarios that they play you know no matter who they play him with so uh i i think it's going to be okay no matter what those are just some guys who who i would see as kind of dream fits so yeah for sure uh david jackson wants to know how good is lucas raymond and is he justified for being a little nervous about the scoring numbers in the shl this year
2: uh, I think Lucas Raymond's a heck of a hockey player. I think he's uh, very, very talented. I would not be nervous at all about uh, Lucas Raymond's scoring numbers. I think we've said this on previous episodes. The Frölunda team that he plays on is one of the lowest scoring teams in the SHL. So even though they were a kind of good hockey team and they're a good development program, they're also a team that just simply does not score a lot of goals. I think they scored like the fourth or fifth fewest amount of goals in the SHL this year. Um, it's just 133 goals in 52 games. Uh, so, you know, there's not a lot of points to really go around. It's almost the same concept as if you looked at the Red Wings roster and said, your leading point getter had 26 points in 56 games. Like that's, that's not great. And I think it's the same issue for uh, Raymond and for So I think what you should really be looking for is wherever he ends up next season, uh, likely in Grand Rapids, but potentially even in the NHL, I'd expect him to, really be able to display his offensive skills a lot more.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I would caution people like when Lucas Raymond does come over, like don't expect a point per game NHL. Play- like that's setting yourself up to be disappointed if you, if you put that expectation on, but like, you know, expect him to to develop into a, a top six first line, like kind of player. But remember what we talked about, like a month back, that does not mean point per game. Like, like those players are not, uh, that's not what you call a first-line player. That's an elite player. So I, I would say, and, and it's possibly can become that. But I'm just saying, don't set that as the bar. He didn't dominate that. I don't think this year was like a red flag for me um, by any means. And, and I think you know when when we've talked about his, uh, you know, his shot share, his goals four percentage, like all that stuff is really promising uh, for for the kind of player who's going to be highly, highly impactful. Um, and again, I know people are sick of this, but like, think more overall impact on the game than. Score sheet, score sheet, score sheet for him,
2: right? Yeah, I would completely agree. And, I mean, if you're looking for a guy to sort of compare against, look at Tim Stutzla in in Ottawa. I think uh, at the beginning of the year, he sort of really struggled to, to, to get off the schneid. I think he was having a little bit more difficulty, even though you could very much see the skill was there. But, you know, basically towards the end of the season, he closes the season with a hat trick the other night. And so I think he's a guy that's kind of slowly but surely found his way. But season didn't look all that impressive, and he didn't score as much as, you know, people would want being a point per game hockey player. And so I think that's sort of what I would expect to see from a Lucas Raymond in his first year in the NHL is, you know, something closer to what Stuthler did, which was about half a point per game to 0.6 points per game in that kind of realm.
1: Chris R. wants us to celebrate the offseason with a tankathon spin. Are you up for it? All right. Are you spinning or am I spinning? I will spin. Vancouver is down 1-0 at the end of the first, so that will not change anything, most likely. I mean, I guess they could come back, but we'll say it doesn't. Um, Sim lottery.
2: All right, in this lottery, the Red Wings will pick eighth. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So par for the course where they can drop the maximum number of spots, right? That's right.
1: So this one would have the San Jose Sharks uh, in the first pick. Who do you like for San Jose?
2: Uh, first overall, uh, I think you're probably picking Owen power at this point. How about the LA Kings? I mean, if the Kings are able to jump up to two, so I'm assuming they're winning a lottery here. Yep. That's uh, what it is. Yep. And, and so, I mean, the Kings are already so damn loaded, uh, up front with, you know, velardi and Turcotte and, and Byfield, And, uh, so for me, I'm probably leaning defense if I'm, if I'm the Kings and, and maybe looking at Brant Clark, but, Honestly, it's hard to pass up, you know, Beniers or, or Eklund there. But I think for our purpose, I'm going to go with my strategy and give him the forward. Uh, and, and let's say they take Maddie Beniers, So one, two for Michigan. You really think they go another center? You can always move
1: him out to wing, right? You're not moving Beniers to the wing. You're moving someone else to the wing. You're moving Turcotte or
2: something. You can move Turcotte to the wing. The to the wing. Yeah. yeah. Move Turcotte to the wing.
1: Or you're trading for Jack Eichel, I guess. If you or you're trading you're for Jack Trichel. Eichel,
2: right? So. <laughs>
1: All right. I, I'm stunned. I thought for sure you were going defenseman there. So that leaves three is uh, Buffalo. Who do you like there?
2: Uh, so if you're Buffalo, you need everything. I think the most skilled player on the board here is probably William Eklund, and that's who I'd probably give Buffalo a three.
1: I was thinking Hughes, but all right. Uh, I don't know, man, I'm worried
2: about his foot. I'm worried about it's, his foot it's totally probably fair, totally more fair. Than, than others. Uh, four is Anaheim. Who do you got for the Ducks? So Anaheim's a fun one. Um, because they could really go in any direction here. I think they probably go defense. Uh, you know, although <laughs> you could argue they really need everything here. Um, but I think probably Luke Hughes is 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 a go at four here.
1: Seattle at five. The first player in franchise history is
2: Oh boy, probably Brant Clark.
1: Okay. Uh six, the New Jersey Devils. They gotta think defense, right?
2: I would, I would think they have to think defense, and I think they're probably looking at Simon Edmondson here.
1: All right. Seven, Columbus. They'd really love to be up there in the range to take uh, Matthew Beneers as a refresher they right would. now. The, what?
2: I said, oh, they certainly would, because they would love a center more than yep. anything else.
1: So, refresher on the board here at six. You've got Dylan Genther. You've got Kent Johnson. You've got Chaz Lucius, Fabian Lysel, Mason McTavish, your boy, Esper Wahlstedt.
2: Anybody stand out? <laughs> I mean, if you're Columbus, you have one of two options. You either take a player who's listed as a center right now um, who may not play center at the NHL, or you take a more skilled player in Dylan Ginter. And I think if you're Columbus, you probably have to do that. I know, you know, Genther's coach has said they're, they're potentially, you know, giving him a little bit of minutes at center, but I think if you're Columbus, you can't pass the talent. So I think Dylan Genther has to go there.
1: All right. So then that brings us to the Red Wings and you've got on the board, Kent Johnson, Chaz Lucius, Fabius, Fabian Lysell, Mason McTavish, Jesper Wallstead, uh, Carson, Carson Lambos, and Carson Kuhlmans. Uh, anybody really jumping out to you? I guess you could even look at a Matt Coronado, a Cole
2: Sillinger. Where uh, are I mean, you going if, here? If I'm here, this is sort of like danger zone for me um, because the top seven guys who I think are maybe a notch above everyone else are all gone. At this yep. point, um, so for me, I'm sort of going to reach a little bit further down and look at Mason McTavish, who I thought had a really nice U18s. Um, you know, his game looked a little disengaged at times um, in Switzerland this year, but I think he's a guy that has all of the skills to to, to potentially even play center. We'll see. He's got some size to him too, at six one two ten. So that's where I would go from Detroit. I thought I was going to have to talk you into that. No. You really weren't. I mean, Mason McTavish is to me the best player here. And so if I'm Detroit, I'm either trying to trade down to see if I can get him at 11 or 12 if someone wants to jump up uh, or or I'm just going to just going to go ahead and do it. Take the best player on my board there. I think
1: I would be between McTavish, Johnson, uh, and I would enter, entertain a trade down as well at this point. But, uh, you know, I, I would give certainly consideration to Johnson. I think upside wise, he's your upside play here, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, him and Fabian Lysell are the two upside plays here. Lysell obviously had some struggles, uh, you know, in the SHL in terms of getting minutes and being able to consistently produce, but he did look occasionally dangerous at times for for Sweden in the U18s. So he's an upside play. Obviously, Kent Johnson's insanely skilled. Um, do worry a little bit about his ability to make those plays at the next level. He's going to play winger also, but you can't deny the talent there. So both of those guys are high upside swings. To me, I think Mason McTavish has the most buckets or most, you know, balls in the upper echelon buckets um, when comparing kind of Johnson and and, and Lysel and uh, McTavish there. I think Johnson would have marbles in a higher bucket. He would have more marbles in a higher bucket. In the very Um, top bucket. Right. But fewer marbles in
1: the top half maybe.
2: Yeah, that's sort of where I'm at with, with him is like, I think he has a huge range of outcomes. And while he does have a couple marbles in that top high end bucket. I am nervous that he's also got a couple mar- marbles in the, you know, third line, fourth line player bucket um, where he's not going to likely be all that successful. So, uh that's the only thing that gives me pause with taking him there versus a McTavish who I think is maybe a little bit more polished.
1: McTavish is the guy who after the World U18s, I wish that I had put on my top 10 draft board. If the Red Wings do fall to 8, I will spend quite a bit more time uh, digging in on him because I think he will very much need to be in that conversation. Yeah.
2: I think he's a, he's a guy to to watch if the Red Wings do end up dropping a couple spots.
1: They could still drop as low as nine, right? Technically
2: uh, as of now, because Vancouver is not past them. Uh, so right yep. now Detroit owns the sixth best uh, lottery odds, but that is contingent on Vancouver ob- obtaining five more points uh or five points plus two regulation wins, or six or more points in their final. I think seven games. It sounds like they're already down one nothing as we're recording this here. So not looking good. Although they have four games to close against Calgary, games that are not being played for anything because Calgary is already eliminated. So maybe maybe something happens. We'll see.
1: All right. Uh, I wasn't going to read this one if the Tankathon went out a certain way, but since the Red Wings dropped two in it. Um, Moonman Hot Takes says, who would you want with the sixth overall pick? So let's just rewind it by two. Uh, I'll put both Edvinson and uh, who'd you take? Genther on the board for you at, at six. Do you take one of those two above McTavish and which one?
2: I'd take Genther above McTavish. I think Genther, uh, supremely talented scoring winger. I do think he has a little bit of an Anthony Mantha vibe to him in the sense that Uh, at times, you know, people will say he looks like he disengages a little bit, but in this draft, I think getting a guy with his shot, his skill level, um, at the sixth overall pick is, is hard to deny. I mean, he, he dominated the WHL in their short season this year and, uh, really made up for that. He didn't look hugely impressive, um, at the U 18s, partly because everyone on Canada was scoring (laughs) all of the goals. Um, And it was was very hard to sort of stand out uh, over Shane Wright uh, and Connor Bedard for that team. But uh, I do think he has the talent. It's just he's got to stay engaged for the course of a hockey game. Uh,
1: And then because you knew this was coming, another follow-up, this one from Chris G. If they pick six or lower, would they take Jesper? Obviously, we can't answer whether they would. We're not going to have the whole litigation debate. But I'm just going to say – I think, like, that's number one. There probably is a point in this first round where even if they shouldn't, uh, whilst it enters the
2: conversation, I do not think it is as high as sixth. Uh, for me, it's about 28. <laughs> I'm, I'm, that, I'm just gonna say that's where he, he sort of enters the conversation because at that point I've made my Washington pick and, uh, then I'm at least using my second pick on that. But, um, uh, you know, I, I I can't litigate this over and over. I think it's I think,
1: 15 or 16 for me. That's, you I know, think that's where it would be for me.
2: It's tough because I, here's the thing. I think there's other goaltenders in this draft who are going to be really good goaltenders. And, you know, just look at what the Red Wings have done the last few years where they just continue to recycle out top 10 goaltending from free agency for a couple million bucks. Why do I want to spend, you know, high draft capital getting things that I'm just pulling out of free agency left and right, yep. like... Uh, that's, that's just where I'm at. It has nothing to do with the player. It has nothing to do with how good they are. It has very little to do with how good we think they're going to be and has everything to do with the position and the number of options available. It's just like, you know, if, if you went to the store and there was this, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to turn this into whiskey analogies here, right? You, you, you turn and you walk into the store and there's a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle, 15 years sitting on the shelf huge rarity. But, you know, the store, they've marked it up to secondary market pricing and it's $1,500 for the bottle. You can pay for that and you're going to have a Pappy Van Winkle bottle. Or, you know, there's a bottle of Blanton sitting on the shelf and it's sitting there for 50 bucks. And that's a really dang good bottle. It's not a Pappy Van Winkle bottle, but it's a really solid bottle and I only spent 50 bucks. I'm going to buy the Blanton's bottle 10 out of 10 times. Nothing against the Pappy Van Winkle bottle. It's a better bottle. It's arguably the best in, in the world, but I'm not spending that much money on it. I'm going to buy the cheaper bottle that gives me a lot of value from it. And that's just, that's where I'm at.
1: Let me tell you about a goalie really quick. Blind, uh, blind resume, okay? All right. Our man is 32 years old. Our man was the 11th overall pick in a draft. And I'm going to give you uh, his save percentages from age 22 to now by year, Okay all right nine thirteen nine oh nine nine twenty two nine twenty two nine twelve nine oh eight nine fifteen nine thirteen nine o four 904, nine oh seven nine fourteen successful eleventh
2: overall pick as a goalie um i mean the context i would sort of need is how many games did he play in each of those seasons uh to, to... uh
1: okay so so total games
2: 387. Okay. So, I mean... So, about 38 games a year. At 11th overall, to me, that's not a successful 11th overall pick. I mean, you got an NHL goaltender, sure, but I think the the variables that you would need to know is from the time of that draft, so when he was the 11th overall pick, when did he actually play his first game for that team? How many games did he actually play for the team that drafted him? Okay. and Because, like, otherwise, if you're evaluating just as an 11th overall pick, that's great you should also evaluate it by the team that drafted him and what did they actually get from him.
1: So, so that run that I read you started four years after he was drafted. Um, I'm not going to tell you how many games he played for the franchise because it's going to give it away. But I just want to know, like, like how, where on the outcome of drafting a goalie does that outcome rank for you? Like, if you draft a goalie at a, let's say let's say 11th overall or or ninth overall or whatever it might be. And you get that outcome. Where where is your emotion level? Let's say they're all for the team that you, that drafts him.
2: I mean, if they're all for the team that drafts him and his, level or at least the first play, seven years, I don't know. Yeah, sure, and, and maybe we say also that his level of play isn't so high, such that I've had to pay him an exorbitant amount of money. Like he makes three you know, million dollars, right? If I continue to give him three million dollars a year and pay for that level of production, I'm very satisfied. But it's going back to what I said. I think at the the opening of you know, you could shut out. Um, you know, you, I could have a goaltender that shuts out the opponent every single yeah. night, and at the end of the day, I have to pay him a large percentage of my salary cap. Yeah, and I'm committing that to a position that doesn't play 82 games, and a position where you know what shit happens, goals go in. That goalie may still not be enough. There's a reason why a lot of the top goalies, you know, that we've seen in the league. Uh, at least in the salary cap era, don't end up on the Stanley Cup winning teams. Like, Henrik Lundqvist never won a cup. He got close. He got to the finals once. But when you pay that much money, they don't get there. The Lightning were smart and got there before Vasilevsky's contract kicks in. And they've had to do some real fun hijinks this year by sitting out Kucherov (laughs) the whole year with this hip injury to be able to continue doing this. But can the Lightning even sustain their team now that they're paying Vasilevsky $9 million a year? You know, we've seen Montreal struggle to field a team around Carey Price. It's, it's, it's That's the problem. Like, even if they are successful, now I throw a bunch of money into that position and it makes it that much harder to build my team around them. So it's sort of like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. If they have great outcomes, that's great, but I have to pay them money. And if they have poor outcomes, well, then I sort of wasted that pick. So it's like the perfect world is they give me above league average goaltending while I continue to pay them below market value.
1: Have you deduced to our? I mean it's Jonathan goalies? Bernier. And I think he yes. played
2: like one game for the LA Kings or something like that. I can't remember. It, it.
1: it. it wasn't one, but it wasn't very many. But my it's my like point, less it, than
2: thirty or something like that. No, right?
1: it's like. Uh, like 60 61 okay. so if you but spent
2: your 11th overall you got 61 games from right. a player you should not be happy with that
1: and my point being though like my point being you got one of the goalies that like you would say man this guy had a 12-year career with like a career save percentage above 9, 9 ten. it's like a nine thirteen career save percentage you got a guy with a with a you know 10-year career uh Thirteen-year career. Actually, two of those are really short. So, but yeah, eleven-year career, go, still going with like a nine-thirteen save percentage. By most definitions, that's an NHL starter. That's close to as good as you can like really expect to do, picking a goalie at that range. Uh, and the Red Wings are just paying him three million a year to to do it out of free agency, no asset costs, And you use your eleventh overall pick on it. Like who's the sucker there?
2: Yeah, I mean that's what exactly it to me. And even with these better goalies, even with these guys like Askarov and Spencer Knight, like we're seeing Spencer Knight in the NHL already. I think Spencer Knight's going to be a stud stud. I think he's going to be a stud. But if you don't get
1: Spencer
2: Knight, then you bombed. Or Vasilevsky, you know what I mean? Like, then you bombed. But even in that sense, right? Look at Florida's position by taking Spencer Knight. Right. Are they going to be able to get, maximize the value from Spencer Knight? Because if you're Florida, the way you maximize that value is you get Bobrovsky the hell out of there yeah. And you use that $7 million on somebody else yeah. because that way you're getting ELC goaltending with Spencer Knight. That's yeah. how you maximize the value of that Is You get them to the NHL quickly, win by building a really good team around them while they're giving you above league average goaltending on an ELC. That's the way to do it. And, and it makes sense if you know how to do that, but you also have to understand that your kind of benefit you're going to derive from that player is limited to sort of those first few years if they are that good because you don't want to commit that much money to them beyond that point. So it's it's almost like you sort of want to maybe consider drafting an elite goalie like that if you're like one or two pieces away yeah. and you think you can actually take advantage of their ELC. Because if you can't, then it ends up a wasted pick like, you know, for the Kings like Jonathan Bernier was. Right. And we, we talk
1: about, you know, you want to draft for upside, all this and that. What I don't think you want to do uh, outside of the top five picks or so, um, and specifically with skaters actually, um, but what you don't want to do is draft players at their absolute ceiling. In other words, in order to make that pick pay off, they have to hit their absolute ceiling, right? Like if you, if you pick a goalie in the second round uh, and you think his ceiling is a starter, I'm fine with it. I know you might still have some hesitance, but if you think he's an everyday starter, if you think he's a Jonathan Bernie, you pick him the second round, that's fine because you got an, an NHL starter in the second round. But if in order to pay off the 11th overall pick, uh, I need a goalie to be Spencer Knight, Andre Vasilevsky, Connor Hellebuck, you know, one of the elites of the elite in the NHL, um, I'm playing myself there because the odds are they're not hitting their absolute ceiling, right? So, like, I just have a hard time buying drafting a player at their absolute ceiling like that like that that's what you're talking about like drafting like um help me out here like like kent johnson number one overall it's possible kent johnson is the best player in this draft class but but you you need him to be to justify that at that point right and like whereas i think with owen power like he doesn't have to hit his absolute ceiling to be one of the top two or three players in this draft class he can he can hit like an 85th percentile outcome i think
2: yeah and that's exactly and that's sort of where i'm at with all of this is like you know and uh, Plus, you're going to get 82 games out of those guys. You're going to actually yeah. get, and, and you can more freely Some, some predictability, money right.
1: what they're going to give you in a year. You're not going to have this mystifying, if, if they have 10 bad games, it doesn't ruin your season.
2: That's, you know, like, that's exactly it. So that's, that's sort of where I'm at with it. And plus, I think the, the other variable here is exactly what you said, Max. We continue to see good goalies pop up out of low yeah. rounds. Dustin Wolf looks like a heck of a goaltender for Calgary. Seventh round pick just a couple years ago. Right. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about Carter Guylander for Detroit being a potentially good goalie. Sixth round pick a couple years ago. So there are guys you can get in these later rounds that just give you 85% of what the guy going 10th overall would. So to me, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to go that route.
1: Yep. Yeah. All right, uh, Garth. Thoughts on training for Nolan Patrick as a reclamation project? I kind of love this one.
2: Yeah, I mean, Nolan Patrick... Uh, it kind of fits the mold of the kind of deals that Brutal season. Statistically. Yeah. I mean,
1: single digit points,
2: really brutal season. It kind of falls in line with what happened with, you know, Robbie Fabry kind of dealing with, you know, Patrick dealing with the concussion issues, Fabry, uh, obviously dealing with multiple knee injuries, uh, and seeing if he can get them for cheap and and kind of have them come over. I have no problem making a deal like that, particularly if you don't think he's going to cost you that much. Um, he'd be a fun, um, you know, player to bring into the system uh, and sort of tease out if he's able to offer you anything.
1: I'd be same with Baron Hayton. I'd put him in the same conversation too. If you can get Barrett Hayton uh, at, at the low, that's that's a buy low. These are two guys that have been drafted in the last five years. They're in their very young 20s all day. That's that's the perfect reclamation project you're targeting. You want yeah. what happened with Puli Arvey, right? Like Pulley Arvey this year, all of a sudden, he looks like a dude that you won't mind drafting in the top 10 again.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what you want. Same thing that's happened with Robbie Fabry since coming over from St. Louis. You want that kind of reclamation. There's always a the potential it goes the way of a Brendan Perlini, but yep. you know that's that's the risk you take here, and it should be a low-risk deal both ways.
1: Yep, absolutely, absolutely. All right, uh, next one. Is, okay, we're going to have to get through this one kind of quick. Um, Marcus G., question about offer sheets. We always talk about them, and often they seem like a reasonable way to acquire surefire young talent, but then nothing happens do you think it's possible that most GMs don't do it just to maintain each other's respect? I have heard this one thrown around so much in the three years that I've been on the Red Wings beat. And it boggles my mind that that's, that that's what people think is the inhibitor here. Um, I I think this one's kind of simple to me. It's like, there's, there's just so many layers to doing it. Like it, it it's really easy for us to talk about because in theory, it's a great idea. It's like this, like, it's kind of the forced trade option on, on like NHL 21 or something, right? It's like, Oh, what are you going to do? You're out of cap space. You can't match. Um, but in reality, GMs have more options. Number one, you have to get the player to sign it. So you, you, it requires going after a player who is like, you know, willing to do something kind of radical, uh, to, to get his money or to get away from his current situation. That's the first one. They have to sign it, right? The huge obstacle, way bigger than we ever give credit for. when we talk about this stuff. Number two, the other team can match, and I know people will say they're capped out, but if you want to talk about offershooting Elias Pettersson, as we have, and I think it's a fine idea to opt to to, to you know t- take an attempt at, Vancouver still has a week, and what's Vancouver going to do sooner? Let Elias Pettersson walk or give up the first round pick or whatever it takes, whatever drastic option it takes to dump Louis Erickson's contract and then be able to match. Because at the end of the day, unless you're offering Elias Pettersson $15 million, which by the way... Uh, would put you in a brutal position on top of the four first round draft picks that you're giving up to acquire him Vancouver can find a way to match you can make their life miserable but they'll do it that's their guy like that's their break that's the the once in a generation break that you get theirs was getting elias Petterson a fifth overall they will do you know radical things to protect that right so at that point knowing that if you're a GM, Do you really want to go through like the, the, the time waste knowing that like, if I do this, I'm not saying don't, you don't put the feelers out, but why does it not happen as much? Because at the end of the day, if the other team's going to match, you know, you're doing one of two things. You, you are making their job easier, you know, like they don't have to negotiate anymore because they have the signed contract in front of them. And it's a deal that you at least deem palatable enough to do yourself. You're going to make their job easier like that and just make it so all they have to do is rubber stamp. Oh, yes. Yes, I do match. Thank you very much. Uh, I, that's kind of ultimately what happened with with Sebastian Ajo a couple years ago, right? Like Carolina all of a sudden has Ajo on like a pretty team friendly deal
2: courtesy of Montreal. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I guess Bergerman threw the most cupcake offer sheet yeah. that he possibly could there. but.
3: No, but, but it was the abso- one that
2: he could make work, you know? Right. And, and so you're, you're absolutely right. Like it has to basically be a big enough offer sheet that you think a team wouldn't match. And that's very hard to, to really pull off. And then I think the only other thing I'll add to that is um, I just think a lot of teams still struggle to evaluate draft picks and sort yeah, of that's contextualize true. like how valuable is this particular draft pick? Um, I think we see that happen all the time with some of these trades that are made. So uh, I think that's really the only other piece to it, but uh, yeah, I don't think it's really related to respect for another GM. I think that's sort right. of gets overblown. Like like
1: if I told you Elias Petterson was a UFA tomorrow, what contract would you give him? Like what I do you mean, think the contract he would sorry, now what would you give him? What do you think the the contract he would get is?
2: Yeah, I mean, as a UFA, you're probably looking at about seven years, eight and a half million, nine million, somewhere in that range. Um, is what I think but, right. would you do as a UFA. As you, so.
1: I think it could get to 10 as a UFA Uh double day. like, I think you can get in the Tavares range, all that stuff like, like that he, because he's a young player. He doesn't have the resume as Tavares, but I think you could justify it. But I'm saying in order to, to do that deal, number one, Vancouver's matching that deal all day. Uh, you'd have to go higher than that. What, what what he would get on the open market and you'd have to give up your next four firsts. Like that's, it's crazy. It's not unjustifiable un- or indefensible but it's a huge, huge, huge ordeal in order to make it so that Vancouver wouldn't match it, or or what, or Team X wouldn't match it, or whatever. You know what I mean? So to me, I've always thought the best offer sheet strategy is to go with the guys that teams aren't going to move heaven and earth to to accommodate. I wanted uh, last season if the, if the Red Wings were going to make one, I was advocating do it on Eric Chernak because they have so many problems they'll move heaven and earth to save like Sorelli and Sergeyev. They're not going to move heaven and earth, or at least I didn't think at the time to save Chernak, but I really like Chernek. It's possible they would, they would make that bite the bullet and do the Tyler Johnson dance to save Chernak. I don't know, but, but I think that's where you target. You target the guys who are like third pair, third line guys who you think can be second pair, second line guys. And you get them for the cost of like a second round pick.
2: That's how I would do it. Yeah. I mean, ultimately I think at the end of the day, they're just not utilized enough. And, and I yeah. think, GMs could could attempt to do it more either following the strategy, like you said, or really going big on on it. And 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 again, that comes down to better valuation of draft picks, I think.
1: All right. Last one from Ethan B because
2: I know you got to run. What was your favorite moment from the season? Uh, I'll take two favorites. I think the Jacob Rana four goal night was a lot of fun. I think it was really great seeing him uh just just looked almost amused by the fact that he was able to just keep scoring goals and then Kind of a throwback to the beginning of the season. I think Christian Juice scoring that uh, all important power play goal to end the Red Wings 40 consecutive power plays without a goal and raising, you know, more than $15,000 for the Jamie Daniels Foundation. I think those are probably the two best moments for me uh, from this season. Yeah, I think that
1: that Jamie Daniels Foundation one certainly ranks really high up there. Burrell, I don't think on Red Wings Twitter was ever higher than than that week uh, or that range in there. Um, I'm trying to think what else the Robbie Fabry hat trick was fun. The Sam Gagne hat trick, especially because of the way it happened, uh, was pretty fun. I think we're just kind of saying the best individual performances (laughs) right now, but that's not the worst thing in the world either. So Joe Valeno's debut and and Joe Valeno's first goal stand out as pretty good moments too. Um, maybe we'll have to keep a running tab of these next year in order to have, uh, a, a better kind of, uh, you know, pool to, to pull from, but Anyway, that will do it for us. We'll be back at you later this week, hopefully with a uh, end of season press conference uh, to break down. And if not, we'll make another episode out of your mailbag questions. So thanks again for listening and take care.